Hi, Mr. Paul. Welcome. How are you? Good, 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 good. How's London treating you? I just arrived today. I just arrived from uh, Paris on the uh, Eurostar. Very good. Very good. Mate, the Fed just raised rates by 75 basis points. Discuss. So you and I have been saying that even if they, we have a, a mini crash in equities and, and we have a real crash in crypto and I'm watching the leverage unwind. Don't forget in 2000, 2001, when we had a really big increase in market rates, the economy was not that affected because it was an equity phenomenon, right? I mean, NASDAQ is an equity phenomenon. Yep. It's not a debt-related phenomenon. We have yet to get to the debt-related stuff, and that's going to be basically in real estate. But also look carefully at what's going on with like MicroStrategy and Silvergate Bank. There, there's a big leverage unwind in crypto land, and that's causing the lower it goes. The more you sell, the lower it goes, and you have margin calls. And so a micro strategy is kind of one of the one of the tectonic plates that we need to pay attention to. That is down um, 70, 77% year to date. Celsius as well. I think there was talk that Celsius was having trouble today. There's another one, which is, <laughs> it certainly is the stress point. The question you need to ask, I think, is, is there, the word systemic is getting thrown around too much. I don't think there's a systemic shock in crypto, but it doesn't mean that a lot of people are not going to lose a, a hell of a lot of money in that space. Right. And I think we've seen that. It's ironic. Stocks are rallying. Crypto, um, Ethereum was down 11% at one stage today and is now and is now back at unchanged. But I don't think that hides the fact that there is a real systemic. And I think the systemic nature is not for the market as a whole, but it doesn't mean there won't be effectively a wipeout of the, of, and I say this with almost the most serious face, wipeout of the majority of the crypto businesses that are out there, the leveraged crypto businesses that are out there. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, gosh, everything is up like two plus percent. Even some of these stuff that, that was just creamed, like C is up, you know, seven percent. These guys were just completely creamed uh, before. So so it's a, a lot better off. So it's like buy on the um, sell on the rumor, buy on the news. Paul, I'm going to say this feels like something broke. This feels like it's systemic. I'm going to say there's something systemically wrong in crypto land. Because don't forget, what, what I see happening now in crypto land is what we saw with private equity in 2007, when as we went into 2008, early 2008, into the spring, you had quite a few private equity companies saying, oh, sorry, I know we said we'd give you your money back, but we're going to have to wait. Yep. Gating. And the gating is happening in crypto land. It is not happening in private equity land. And no. so the, the, gating, the gating is to me is, is a sign of systemic problems where companies are jeopardizing their reputation for 10 years when they're saying, look, you're not getting your money back, so forget it and don't call us and leave us alone. We'll call you and we're ready to give it back to you. Plus, I think if you look at Silvergate, that was a darling stock. Everybody owned Silvergate a year ago, not like three years ago, a year ago. And so got to watch Silvergate very carefully here because they're a major lender to, to MicroStrategy. And MicroStrategy was, is, is in big trouble if crypto is about where we are. <laughs> yeah, well, again, it's a people, so, Michael Saylor, who was, um, how should we say, Hubris is there is there is that the right way to use to describe him? Hardly a, a shy retiring gentleman, we'll call him that. A billion dollars worth of loans against this stuff, right? And it's ah, uh, I think it was. I think it was actually uh, a lot higher than that. I think it was north of two and a half or something like that. Wow. Yeah, there's no recovery. <coughs> again, isn't it? 
Look, at the end of the day, people go bankrupt for one reason and one le- reason only is because of leverage. Yeah. If got, and if you've got leverage in a, if put it this way, if you've got leverage in an eighty vol in an eighty vol instrument, you deserve everything you get. Uh, amen, amen. And of course, bankruptcies always happen in the same zip code. It's very funny. And and he utterly blew up. His stock was down ninety five percent in two thousand one, two thousand two from the top. So right. I'm a big I'm a big believer that bad things happen in the same zip codes over and over and over again. And so this guy is just playing the same game he was playing in 2000 money. It's almost like he can't help himself. He's an inveterate gambler. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so but I'm sure he's a very nice person. And, and so so I'm going to say I'm going to say there's there's uh, something systemic in crypto land. I am looking at like I said, like we said last week, I was really worried about a lot of these fixed income funds. A lot of these fixed, in, fixed income funds are are very widely held. Guys like the like the the BlackRock Income Fund that's down from that was like four seventy and that all went all the way down to like almost four bucks from uh, almost five bucks. Sorry, uh, yeah, five twenty all the way down to like four dollars, and, and that that's an income fund, right? Yes, and you got all these other six years with a carry just disappeared. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. And of course, one of the things that I want to remind people about is when, when, when it was intervention time in, back in, 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 in 2008, 2009, and then again, later on in the middle of the teens, these, these were the funds that were getting creamed and there was a lot of concern. And of course, I think that what happened was BlackRock was turned into a quasi central bank and they're basically the phone calls went out, buy high yield, buy these fixed income you know, instruments and get them back up again. And, and, and they went up like lickety split within like three days. Mm. And so you've got uh, a bunch of these sort of similar instruments that are, that are, that are in, in deep, deep trouble. They're, they're down. Um, yeah. The, like the, the, there's one, the, the investment, everyone owns this thing. It's the investment, it's LQD. Yeah. Uh, it's the, yep. the liquid, liquid investment grade corp. This is investment grade corporate bonds. This is supposed to go sideways forever, right? And it went from uh, 140 down to 110, right? So you've just wiped out a decade's worth of your like coupon clipping in mm. basically in June. And the irony, but the right. irony with all that, mate, is that spreads, you know, that's obviously because because nominal yields have risen a lot, right? We shouldn't lose sight of that. This is not a, about a dramatic spread widening because if you look at if you look at high yield at high yield debt, I mean, using the a ten year index that I look at, about five about five twenty five over, and you only really get into quote unquote crisis mode nineteen ninety oh eight twenty twenty when you get to a thousand over, right? So the, yeah, the yeah, scary, yeah. scary thing is that one can make an argument that the equity move has been remarkably orderly in the context of you know these things have moved a long way, but Frank, in fact, I would argue it's been quite orderly, it gets unruly if you've got credit at a thousand over. Which, you know, and look, yeah, you know, not a lot of evidence of, of credit problems at the moment. But Paul, I do want to go back to a point which I have made time and time and time again, and pretty much to myself because no one's listening, is that I'm listening. I you listening do listen. You. I appreciate that. I, no, I do yeah. appreciate yeah. that. That you know, so Chairman Powell, I scribbled a bunch of notes about from his press conference that I was just listening to. And he called the economy very hot from a demand standpoint, right? And if you look at, and again, the Atlanta Fed is not the be-all and end-all. So kids, for those of you who don't know what the Atlanta Fed, uh, what the Atlanta, Atlanta Fed now, GDP now indicator is, it is what I think is a rather reliable indicator about what the current quarter is tracking from a growth perspective. 
Paul, it went negative. It went negative today. Now, last time I looked, and uh, the, the definition of a recession, well, the, the one I know of anyway, is two consecutive quarters of negative growth, and we had a negative quarter in Q1 that everyone dismissed. And we are, as we stand today, all other things being equal, we will have a negative quarter in Q2, right? So, A, no one's on board with that thinking. People think a recession's coming but not now, right, when technically we could be in one now, right? And But the question I, I wrote, I wrote after all by scribbling my notes about the Fed going above, getting to above neutral, you know, the rate Fed funds forecast to be 3.4% by the by the end of the year, which would be roughly an, another 175 basis points of, of tightening. That would be give or take 100 bips over neutral, which people think most people think neutral somewhere between two and two and a half. But I don't know where the white hot demand in the economy is. So again, it goes back to the point I've been making the last couple of weeks. Are we in a full employment recession, i.e. have real incomes taken such a hit because of inflation? that you can have a job and still not make ends meet, right? And hence the compression you're seeing in, in, nominal, in nominal spending versus, versus price increases, and hence we're heading towards recession. So people can have jobs, but as, as we've talked about, food, you know, food, food pantries are, are bursting at the seam. Gas prices you know, above $5 a gallon. Globe, uh, across mm-hmm. across the United across the United States, yep. you can have a job, but real incomes are getting hit to such an extent, right? And as Powell yep. made, made the point, you know, we have positive real yields in many parts of the yield curve, right? Because inflationary expectations, which is what you should look at when looking at, so ten-year forward inflation expectations versus ten-year nominal yields will give you that 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 real that real ten-year forward yield. Most most from the most of the curve two years out has positive has positive real yields from an inflationary expectation standpoint. Clearly not now mm-hmm. at the front end, because clearly not now. So are we seeing policy being restrictive? Are we, well, you know, we're not at neutral yet, but are we getting towards restrictive? We again, I'm just looking at facts here. We could have another negative quarter in Q2, which would give us a technical recession. Right. Mm-hmm. And from a central well, bank, so, so, it would be any worse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. No, I, I, it's really well articulated, and and what 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 troubles me about everything that you're saying about what you say, Hal said, and I believe it because I was traveling, I couldn't see anything. Here's the deal, Paul. I mean, the deal is not necessarily that we have a demand problem; is that we have a supply problem, right? We have a global su- supply problem in in so many things. So I'll, I'll give you I'll give you five examples real quick. Number one. Obviously, the Russia-Ukraine war, the Black Sea has been closed off. The Black Sea is blockaded and mined, and it's going to be very, very difficult to remove the mines in order either for the you know, Russian Black Sea fleet to land in, in Odessa or else for if there would be like a miracle negotiation for Ukrainian ships to leave Odessa and, and take grain and sunflower and, and oils and all the other stuff that the world needs, especially Africa. But it looks like Putin is going to be blackmailing the world, blockading food and causing a famine. That's inflationary. Number two, we have a highly agitated labor force right now that has been quiescent for 20 years. And I've been so dumbfounded when I went back and lived in America from 2000 to 2005, before I went back to Hong Kong, I was dumbfounded by the quiescence and the, the bovine 
nature of the labor force. I mean, everything was, and I have nine siblings, so I can tell you, I heard stories from all of my siblings, all their vacation was taken away, their insurance was taken away, their benefits were taken away. They were working two jobs just to stay even, just to stay afloat. And that quote you called the bovine nature of the US labor force. Yeah. Can you yeah. please can you please try and patent that? Because that is that is a thing of that's beautiful. <laughs> bovine nature, that's brilliant. Yeah. Just a bunch of mooing cows because they should have been much more militant back then. And of course, finally takes God knows what it takes, that it takes a pandemic to cause the labor force to go apeshit. And now you have an apeshit labor force, which is not going to turn quiet. I'm sorry. Especially when you have college-educated people who are baristas in Starbucks and are looking around and telling everybody else around them, you're idiots. This is what we're going to do. We're going to organize, right? And these are college-educated people, right? And then um, very importantly, you have basically a replication of the entire – I was talking about this for several years. People thought I was crazy. The the world is splitting in two. The the, the national security, technology, semiconductor world is splitting in two. It started splitting in two three, four years ago. And so the world needs two of everything. So it's going to be like 30, 40, 50 billion dollars to have two semiconductor plants uh, you know, for on, on in Asia and one in America. TSMC is building like four different plants. Those are really expensive. They need a lot of people. They need a lot of expensive scientists and engineers. And they're very expensive to build. They're six, seven, eight billion dollars a pop. The other one that's very important, and it was the St. Louis Fed that pointed this out a couple of uh, weeks ago. Again, the Fed, everything I'm saying, the Fed can't fix. The Fed cannot fix this. We are in a world where people have woken up to the reality that we are looking at a cartelization of the United States economy right in front of our eyes, quietly, quiescent, clandestinely for the last 10 years. Look at at the top companies in the NASDAQ. Every one of them is a monopoly. Facebook is a monopoly. Microsoft is a monopoly. Google is a monopoly, right? On and on. Apple is a monopoly. Right. You have monopolies all over the place and and the Fed can't fix that. Lastly, and most important, and I underestimate this, the reason why we had structural deflation all through the 90s and into the 2000s was because we had one point five billion welcome. One point five billion capitalists came into the workforce. China opened up. China's closing. One point five billion people are leaving the capitalist workforce. Sixteen percent of the Earth's population is leaving Mm. the party. Right. And so you, you so you've got a, a very large shrinkage. Lastly, and most important of all, I can tell you this because I got you know, a bunch of siblings who are living this. We have we have at least 20 to 25 million people because I do a lot of work in drug and alcohol addiction treatment. We have 20 to 25 million people who've left the, left the workforce, not just because they're sort of fed up or because they're tired or because they want to spend more time with their grandkids. They're burned out. They've blown up. They're addicted. They're drinking excessively every day. They're addicted to painkillers or OxyContin or other types of drugs and, uh, and alcohol. Their permanent disability from injuries that were small injuries five, 10 years ago. They couldn't go to the hospital because they, could, they didn't have an insurance. Those injuries uh, worsened. We have uh, rampant morbid obesity in America which was aggravated by COVID. We have somewhere between two and 10 million cases of long COVID right now, right? And probably going to have more. And so all that added up means you've got a couple of tens of of millions of people who've left left the workforce. This is a supply problem. And whether it's 75 or 175 or 50 or 25, those interest rate increases are not going to solve your your supply problem. So for Mm -hmm. those five reasons, Russia... China, 
uh, labor force, Taiwan and cartels, those five things, people are just not talking about that. Cartels mm-hmm. have pricing power. That's inflationary, right? The Russia-Ukraine thing is not going to, I wrote a piece to my clients the other day, getting the mines out of the Black Sea is going to take a long time. It's in neither side's interest to remove the mines. That is the problem with the Black Sea right now. That stuff is not going to get out this season. We're going to have a really bad problem. This adds on to the the um, the, the oil and the, the gasoline problem as well. So 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 all that into consideration, Paul. We have a, a, a several five structural supply problems, not a demand problem. And I'm shocked that Powell wouldn't have talked about any of this. And why it took like a freaking study from the St. Louis Federal Reserve that nobody paid attention to and everybody glossed over because we don't want to talk about monopolies and cartels in America. We want to talk about free market capitalism. And right now, America is anything but free market capitalism based upon the market cap of the stock market. Hal talked consistently about the committee's estimates of where where Fed funds has to go to between three and a half and four. And one of the reasons I think that things have bounced bounced since the announcement is the notion that the market has a terminal rate of about 4%. The Fed has said their their median terminal rate is 3.8%, so give or take, that's Roughly, that's roughly in line. And the idea, I think, that the market is squeezing has to do with the fact that you know, if the Fed and the market are in alignment, that tends to be a good environment for a, an environment for things to rebound. Now, obviously, I think there's a recession coming. I think we haven't reached recession multiples as yet. But near term, I think that's in the very here and now, that's one of the justifications for this. Again, there's two types of this. Powell's made the point that he'd like to see several quarters of declining inflation. He wants to see medium-term measures like the Michigan inflation, five-year inflation expectations start to come down towards his 2% target, right? But, Paul, there's two types of inflation, as you've alluded to. There's demand-style inflation and there's supply-side inflation. And demand-side inflation is is something you control with monetary policy. If he is in the business of of being dogmatic about that 2% number, right, and even if that 2% number is all supply-side, which, let's face it, they can't really control at the margin, right? How much do they have to, well, if they're going to crush the economy to such an extent that that supply-side inflation dissipates, right, you hit demand so hard that even with those structural issues such as the cartelization of the United States, the the, the the deglobalization efforts of of an inward-looking China, of Russia, Ukraine, of of the labor of the labor force in the United States fighting back after four decades of, of negative real wages, what that could do to the U.S. economy could be absolutely devastating, right? As in the sort of like a recession like we haven't seen in a very very long time. The impact of almost like the 1970s, where they have to crush things because they have to crush not only the demand side of the equation but the you know to hit demand so hard that it actually brings down supply-side inflation as well. That's concerning. Okay. Hey, dude, I got news for you. I am like a balance sheet guy, and I've been looking at banks for 15 years. And when I was at Lehman Brothers, I sat around the table in like April with the executive committee and the strategy committee, which was April, the April 08. committee Sorry, in April the bank. 08. April 08. April 08. In April 08. And I said, do you, do you guys do realize that balance sheets are not designed to shrink? And a lot of them just looked at me like I had nine heads. And I'm telling you right now, the Fed's balance sheet is not designed to shrink. And that is the dirty little secret that the Bank of Japan has taught us for the last 20 years. If you want to go down this road, 
and you want to have another 75 or even like get up to 200 basis points of increases to crush demand in order to accommodate a restrictive supply because of everything we talked about, the TSMC issue, the Russia issue, the China issue, the labor, uh, militant labor, plus the cartelization of the American economy. Dude, we are looking at a debt deflationary depression worse than 1931 and worse Mm -hmm. than 1936. In 1936, what happened was everyone said, hey, you know what? It's over. We we, we, we licked it. Everything's fine. (laughs) This is the mistake of 1936. Mm. In 1936, the Fed, can you believe it? They increased the, the, the statutory reserve requirement from four to 11. And then the Congress passed, I think, a, a pretty much close to a balanced budget. And the 1936 and 37 depression was worse than the 1930-31 depression. And that's why we went into World War II, because don't forget, by 19, in 1941, on you know, Friday, December 5th, 1941, unemployment in America was 20%. Mm-hmm. Right? America never got over the 1937 catastrophic monetary and fiscal catastrophe That was monetary and fiscal and tax and foreign exchange contraction all at the same time. And and, and America is exactly making the same mistake as it made in 1936. Everything's fine. We fixed the problem. Well, I would say the one thing, the one thing I think is about the balance sheet shrinking is you can tighten financial conditions and not shrink the balance sheet that much. Because again, it goes back to goes back to a point. Correct. Kind of like watching Sam, yeah, Ra- correct. Randy yeah. Randy Crows, my, uh, my friend Randy Crosner was on uh, CNBC uh, today, and Randy was asked why won't they shrink the balance sheet more quickly, and he didn't actually say this in so many words, but sort of alluded to the fact that the Fed never, and no central bank ever, has gone off and hit the bid in the market to reduce its balance sheet. All balance sheet reduction is done through maturities. There is no physical yeah, yeah. selling of bonds because there is financial asset markets being who, being who and what they are, the notion of going to the Federal Reserve bringing JP Morgan prop desk and saying, can I get a bid in 500 million five-year notes, please? And for that not to create an unruly spike in interest rates, right, doesn't happen. So they'll let the, you know, every maturity will be allowed to mature and that's okay, right? There is a supply-demand element and all of that, but it's not mm, going to yeah. be unruly from a price perspective. So I, I disagree with the depression debate arguments from, the, from this standpoint, that I actually don't think the balance sheet shrinks that much. So they can raise rates a lot, right? They could go to four, they could go to four percent and they can go to four percent by Q1 of next year, right? And Paul, wait, wait, wait. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute, Paul. There were people at the Federal Reserve who were saying they want to get the Federal Reserve balance sheet back to where it was pre-COVID. I'm telling you, that's the words out of their mouth. I'm not. Right. And you can do, and you up. can do that. Yeah, that's true. No, that's true, Paul. That's true. But you can do that with maturities alone over a two-year period. That will take. That will take. Ta- <laughs> no, no, two years, two years, two years. Because remember, no they way, started no at way, such a high no base. Way. They started at such a high base, right? So if you because and they bought a lot of shorter-dated maturities with all of this, right? So the maturity profile is about is about seven years for the entire. It's sorry, about six six point. Six point yeah, eight yeah. years, I think it is, something like that. Anyway, so yeah. if you if you were to organically let everything that matures matures in the next couple of years, you can drop the size of the balance sheet by a couple of trillion dollars. But Paul, I mean, listen, uh, listen to my point though. Uh, all well said, well spoken. But 
the thing that that we need to understand about the, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, it, it's like it's like I almost like I love the analogy from my friend Peter Stella, who was I, I forgot Peter's last name, Peter Stella, who was the IMF rep to central banks for like 10 years. He's the smartest guy in the world that I know on central banks. And he taught me. I spent a lot of time with him because there was nobody else who I learned more about what's happening than him because he's that he was a specialist in the IMF on this topic. Uh, a central bank is like an oil pan. The oil pan catches the oil in the car when the engine is idling. And if you don't have an oil pan, you're in big trouble because you need that oil to go back up into the engine when you put the engine in drive. And that's the whole phenomenon of negative rates. If, if rates turn negative in the U.S., as they did during the pandemic, as they did in 2008, the, the, the Fed pulls all that money onto the Fed balance sheet to make the price of money go up to a positive number. Because why? Because negative rates are totally unacceptable in the context of America, because they look at Japan and they saw negative rates destroy the Japanese banking system three times in 20 years. So I don't care what you say you're going to do. If, you're, if, if what you described to me was 250 basis points, we are looking at a, we're going to have a very weird yield curve where the potential uh, for the short end, 90 days and less to go negative is very, very high if the economy grinds to a halt as much as you say it's going to. Yeah. And so if it turns negative, the Fed will have no choice. It's not like they can or can't, or they go into the market and talk to JP Morgan. They must be the buyer of last resort, all those deposits to keep the price of money above, mm. above zero. And so that is what I really worry about if those rates turn negative. We have to watch that very carefully. I think they will. I think they're going to turn negative. By probably the it's probably I still, a 2024 story, though, is that it's probably, a, you know, with rates, with cash rates now at 170, you know, 175, well, what between 150, 175, the chance of the front end going negative anytime soon is there. In the event of, you know, let put it this way. If I, I could see because of fiscal compression and lingering effects of the dollar and all this sort of stuff that, that we have a double dip recession in, in the US with 2024 being the big problem because you've got a massive fiscal compression coming because of a, a Republican control of the House and, and Senate. That's where it could happen. I don't see it happening for the next 18 months or so because, again, just with rates, if, the, if we are on a path to be at 3.4, you know, between, let's say, 325 and 350 at the end of the year, as according to the Fed forecast, a terminal rate of roughly 4%, it's hard to see how... You know, the, well, unless the growth outlook completely falls off the face of a cliff, which is not inconceivable, it's hard how to see the Fed going into an easing cycle for 2024. Look at Paul, I'm talking about overnight rates, and, and we've gone from yeah. uh, almost zero in March to we're only at eight, we're only at 0.8. Overnight rates are only at 0.8. Right. That is not very far away from zero. So we just got to watch those numbers very carefully. Well, they're high now because, about, because obviously the Fed funds yeah. rate took about by 75 bits today. So that's actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's high. So, um, yeah. So, so yeah, so fair enough. But, but we'll, we'll have to see. We'll have to see. But, but if, if we have the kind of rate increases that you're saying, uh, it's very easy for this whole world to tip over. I mean, don't forget, we have, we've seen a lot of strain indicated in the real estate market by really, uh, uh, drastic drop in volumes. And real estate volumes are always going to fall before prices do. And mortgage, and so, mortgage, rates up, mortgage rates went up 50 basis points in a week. Another 50 basis points in a week. Yep. yep. So again, it's so all these, all these bullshit arguments, Paul, about how 
rates weren't relevant as relevant to the market because this work from home revolution that we were having was going to mean that people upgraded their homes and all this sort of stuff. Such crap. At the end of the day, the affordability to own a home is going up. Exp- the cost of owning a home is going up exponentially because of because of higher mortgage rates. That is what will drive housing lower. Period. Full stop. And, and, you, and that's right. That's right. And so you look at there's a great chart. Just you could pull it up. It's the 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 average mortgage payment for Americans over like a 25 year period and the S&P 500. And so you look at the monthly mortgage rate in the S&P 500, it's the same line. And that monthly mortgage, but it, it inverted, inverted, right? That has gone up by at least 40%. And so don't tell me that people are not going to be you know, in pain with higher mortgage rates, higher credit card rates, lower stock prices. Tens of millions of people were in the retail market. Lots of people were in crypto. Don't tell me there's not pain out there. I think I think this is this is absurd that we just think we're going to skip through merrily with no downturn in real estate. I think that's that's a that's a, a pipe dream. The thing to look, pay attention to is the new crisis for the 2022. Fannie Mae was the crisis of 2009, 10, 11. Yeah. Uh, Sally Mae is going to be the crisis of 2022, 23. I think they're going to have to put Sally Mae into receivership in the same way that they put Fannie Mae into receivership eventually. Because all the all those loans, those student loans are just going to be bust. Uh, that 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 whole student loan is going to have a thirty percent non-performance uh, on these student loans. That's crazy. Uh, mate, when are you off to Toronto? I am off to Toronto on um, Saturday for the uh, Collision Conference, which is good, great. I just got news today; it's sold out. I want to sit there. I think I think this week has been a real like ice cold water over the top of everybody's head right now. So I think we're going to get a little more reality. And, and I, last week when you and I talked, I just thought people were in cloud cuckoo land still. I think we're in a little more reality. You had some of this, some of this stuff felt a quarter, a quarter of its value in one week. Some of this stuff fell 25%. Might have a fantastic trip and we'll talk to you from Toronto. It's all about cash flows, free all cash right. flow relative to capital structure and book value. Go to price to book and, and free cash flows. You'll get the answers. Brilliant. Might have a wonderful week. We'll talk to you. Talk to you soon. Jesus is in the cash flows. (laughs) I found religion. Thank you, my friend. Bye. Bye. Bye.